75 years ago, months after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, the federal government opened up 10 concentration camps to warehouse every one of the 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. Two-thirds of them were U.S. citizens. Most people believe that such a thing should never happen again in the United States to any group, racial, ethnic, religious, or otherwise. I'm Eric Muller, and I think the best way to make sure something doesn't happen again is to know what the thing was that actually happened. That's what this podcast does. It tells stories based on actual events in the lives of real people uprooted from their homes and forced to live in America's concentration camps, not because of anything they had done, but simply because of who they were. I call it Scapegoat Cities. November 15, 1942, was a pretty day on the farm in Norwalk, California, where Min Tanaka had been born in 1933. The temperature was up around 70. An afternoon sun shower sent the farmhands tending vegetables in the fields under shelter, but it was over quickly, and they got back to the harvest. Min's dog, Mickey, a mutt with a lot of beagle in him, lay in the sun waiting for a meal. Leaving Mickey behind when he and his family were forced out back in April had been the hardest thing for Min. Sure, he missed a couple of the kids from school, white kids who'd stayed friends with him even after Pearl Harbor, even after most of the other fifth graders had pulled away and the mean ones had started calling out Jap when he walked by. He missed the drives with his dad in the truck up to the vegetable markets in Los Angeles and the manju his dad would buy him from the Fugetsu Do Bakery in Little Tokyo, where those little sweet rice cakes were especially. But he still had some of his school friends with him, even if they weren't the white kids, and he could still get sweets, even if they weren't manju. But there was no Mickey. There were no pets at all in the Heart Mountain Relocation Center in northwest Wyoming, where Min now lived, along with 10,000 other Japanese and Japanese-Americans. Back in April, as they'd pulled away in the family Chevy, Min had craned his neck out the window, watching Mickey bark and paw at the front fence for as long as he could, until they rounded a corner and Mickey slipped out of sight. They'd already been through a lot, the Tanaka family. An FBI search of their farm, two weeks to sell whatever their white neighbors felt like buying and try to store the rest. But the departure day, leaving Mickey, that was the only time Min had cried. But that was back in April, and now it was November, and Min didn't feel much like crying. Quite the opposite. He looked out his barrack window and saw a fresh blanket of snow on the ground in camp. Snow! To a kid from Southern California, snow was a very big deal. Before coming to Wyoming, he and his friends had never seen snow in their lives except on Christmas cards and in the movies. Min heard his immigrant parents members of the first or Issei generation complaining about the Wyoming weather going on and on about the bitter cold that seeped into their barracks through the gaps and the cracks in the wooden walls and floors and about the snow that whipped sideways in the wind. He knew how much they hated that walk back from the latrine building late at night or early in the mornings when their wet hair would freeze in the couple of minutes it took to cover the distance. But none of that bothered men or his friends in camp. Snow meant snowball fights, 
and it meant that amazing squeaky crunch when you were the first to make tracks through an open field. And most of all, it meant sledding. Nobody owned a sled back at home. And even if Min had owned one, his parents would never have let him bring it with them. If they couldn't carry it themselves, they couldn't bring it, simple as that. A sled would have been crazy when there were shoes and pants and blankets and dresses and dishes and so many other necessities to bring. Fortunately, when the construction crews had finished building the camp a few months earlier, they had left lots of scrap wood lying around that you could turn into makeshift sleds. They weren't pretty, but they did get you down a hill. The first snow came early in October, and Min and his friends went looking for the best spot for sledding. At this point, there wasn't yet a fence around the residential area of the camp, just one much further away at the outer boundaries of the vast site where the government's jurisdiction ended. So the kids could wander pretty freely within sight of the barrack blocks, and the best hill turned out to be one in the northwest corner of block 30. If you sledded in back towards the barracks, the going was too rough because of all the sagebrush, but if you went down the other way, there was a pretty exciting drop-off, almost a ravine, and you could really build up some speed. That hill was good for more than just sledding. It also had a good vista of the whole residential area, all 468 barracks. And so that's where the army had decided to put up one of the nine guard towers. At first, this made Min and his friends a little cautious about sledding out there. Their parents had warned them to keep away from the towers. But it turned out that the MPs in the towers didn't really seem to mind the harmless fun, and one especially friendly guard would even climb down, grab a sled, and take a couple of runs with the kids. It's strange to say it, but sledding on that hill was fun. Min was in a concentration camp. Yeah, that's what everyone called it, a concentration camp, from the internees themselves all the way up to President Roosevelt. But he was having fun. Of course, there was a lot going on around them in those early months in camp that Min and his friends didn't see, that their parents and grandparents protected them from. For one thing, controversy was swirling among the grown-ups about the government's decision to bar all of the community's immigrant elders, the Issei, from running for office in the camp government system. This was an American town, according to the camp director, and in towns across America, only citizens could run for office which meant the younger generation, the ones who'd been born in the United States, the Nisei generation. That sounded good in principle, but in practice it stirred up problems by sidelining all of the older men who were the community's customary leaders. Months later, the government would see what a mistake this was and let the Issei hold office, but right then, the tensions between the Issei and the Nisei were running pretty high. For another thing, the community was struggling to absorb its first deaths one grave dug early in Heart Mountain's new burial ground was for Hiro Kawamoto, a 45-year-old man who died in the Heart Mountain Hospital of what the camp newspaper called a post-operative obstruction. Months later, the medical care at the camp hospital would improve, but in these early days, the hospital lacked a lot of basic medical equipment and many medicines. Hiro left behind a wife, Kichimatsu, and four children between the ages of 16 and 22. A bigger blow to the camp was the death of Genichiro Nishiyama, a 39-year-old hotel operator from Los Angeles, who was sent to Heart Mountain with his wife Fusako and their two boys, 11-year-old Jim and 1-year-old Roy. Nishiyama had been doing his part to help the community, 
volunteering on a crew that was disassembling a CCC building in a nearby town to bring it over to camp. He lost his footing on scaffolding 10 feet up in the air and plunged headfirst to the sidewalk below. He died instantly. The camp newspaper published a tribute to him, saying that he had lost his life not just in the service of his community, but in a larger sense in the service of the nation. For the grown-ups at Heart Mountain, November of 1942 was a time of melancholy and rising anger as they began to come to terms with all they had lost and all they would have to contend with in these new barren surroundings. With Thanksgiving around the corner, Miharu Kawaguchi was pretty downcast and he didn't mince words in a little piece he wrote in the camp newspaper. Uprooted from my home, he wrote, segregated from other fellow citizens, what little ambition I had shattered to pieces, and now, living from day to day in a state of indifference, there doesn't seem to be much for which to be grateful. For Yasuko Amano, a staff writer at the paper, the toughest loss was aesthetic. Quoting poet Percy Shelley, she wrote that while her new high desert surroundings had a certain beauty, all the color and beauty of a thousand sunsets can never compensate for the lack of green tranquility of trees, the pines and palmetto of the coast, whose tops lay asleep like the green waves of the sea. And then there was the fence. Heart Mountain already had a perimeter fence running around the 46,000 acres of federal land dedicated to the project. In early November, without telling the civilian administrators at the camp, the military police in charge of patrolling the perimeter decided to build a second fence, a barbed wire barrier that would encircle the smaller residential portion of the much larger tract. The idea was that internees would be allowed to be in the bigger enclosure during the daytime but would have to stay inside the smaller one after dusk. In some spots, plans for this new inner fence had it running close within 20 or 30 yards of the barracks. This did not sit well with the internees, not at all. In mess hall meetings and latrine conversations around camp, people fumed about the fence and the guard towers too. Issei and Nisei laborers who had initially looked for work in camp to bring in some spending money refused to show up for their jobs. A petition against the fence drew over 3,000 signatures almost overnight. That was over half the camp's adult population. The tone of the petition was indignant. They argued that since they had already been kicked out of the danger zone along the coast, there was no need for the fence or the guard towers. They reminded the administration that they had complied with every government directive and had even been contributing to the war effort by harvesting the region's sugar beet crop, which otherwise would have rotted in the ground. They pointed out that living under guard towers and inside barbed wire would make them nothing but prisoners of war in a concentration camp. The fence and guard towers, the petition said, are ridiculous in every respect, an insult to any free human being and a barrier to any full understanding between the administration and the residents. The camp newspaper was, if anything, soft-pedaling the situation when it said in an editorial that the barbed wire cut deeply, creating definite ill feelings among those who never in their lives have been confined by even psychological barriers. 
Min Tanaka and his friends couldn't wait to get out on their sleds that morning. It was cold and brilliantly sunny, and the snow sparkled the colors of rainbows like countless tiny prisms and piles. He could barely sit still at breakfast in the mess hall, and had to be told twice to stay in his seat until the whole family had finished eating. Then he was off like a bolt, grabbing his sled and running toward the hill with the tower on it, or doing the best he could to run in these deep drifts of snow. With his eyes fixed uphill, he trudged right between two little sticks, standing upright in the snow, topped by little bits of fabric blowing in the breeze, but he didn't notice them. As he got to the top, he saw that he and his friends weren't the only ones who'd had their eye on the sledding hill that morning. A big bunch of other boys were already up there, laughing and taking runs and throwing snowballs at each other's heads. The youngest ones were a couple of years younger than Min, third graders. And Min saw a few of the big kids up there too, the 12-year-olds, who kind of scared him. There were 32 Nisei sledders up there on the hill. Min's first run was fantastic. He took a running leap onto his sled, belly first, and even though he started a few paces behind Jimmy Komatsu, he ended up beating him down the hill by two or three seconds, which was just enough time to spin out and spray powder into Jimmy's face. Some snowballs flew, and then they were back up the hill for another run. Min launched himself again, but this time he couldn't keep the sled from veering into a ditch. Something was off with his sled. He walked back up to the top of the hill and sat down to size up the situation and make a few adjustments. Maybe it was because he was so focused that he didn't notice when the laughter and the yelling stopped. But after a few moments, he realized that all he was hearing was the wind and the sound of truck engines and tires on snow. Two army trucks were coming up the road to the guard tower, but before they got there, they veered over to where the boys were with their sleds. What do you guys think you're doing? the MPs asked. Don't you know you're out of bounds? Min looked around. They'd sledded here before. This was where one of the MPs from the guard tower had taken runs with them, so no, he didn't know they were out of bounds. We're bringing you kids in, said an MP. Leave your sleds here. You won't be needing them anymore. That was the last time Min saw his sled. They all had to climb up onto the trucks and take the bumpy ride all the way back to where the military police had their headquarters near the camp's entrance. There, they were put in a big room and left to think for a while. Then an MP opened a door and ushered them into a bigger space, where Min saw a couple of MPs standing at one end and many of their parents standing impassively at the other. Min made eye contact with his dad across the room, expecting to see them narrowed in anger. But instead, Min saw nothing in his father's eyes, blankness. An MP called the room to attention and told the kids they'd been sledding out of bounds and they were lucky that this time they were only going to lose their sleds. There are guards in those guard towers, he said, and they have guns and instructions not to let people cross the boundary without a pass. Min said that they didn't know about a boundary line out that way. How were they supposed to know where they could sled and where they couldn't? The MP said, It's obvious, didn't you see the markers? Anyway, there'll be a fence there soon. There'll be no mistaking that. He turned to the parents. Take your kids home, he said. Tell them they have to be a lot more careful. This is serious business. The next day, Min and his friends walked over in the direction of the hill. And sure enough, they saw a row of little sticks jutting out of the snow with little tassels of cloth heading off into the distance. 
He couldn't understand how he'd missed them the day before, though he wasn't sure he'd have understood what they meant even if he'd seen them. The kids missed their sleds, but they were relieved that they'd gotten off with just a warning. It was only much later that Min realized the warning wasn't really about sledding and wasn't really directed at him and his buddies. It was directed at their parents. They were going to live inside a barbed wire fence at Heart Mountain, whether they liked it or not. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride. Thanks for listening to this episode of Scapegoat Cities. If you like what you hear, let me know by leaving a comment at scapegoatcities.org. Or better yet, let your friends and family know on Twitter or Facebook or however else you like to tell your people about the podcasts you like. Maybe even turn on some people you don't know to Scapegoat Cities by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. I'm Eric Muller, and again, thanks for listening. Let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon until I lose my senses. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in.